Well, hello, and welcome again to Grasping Scripture. Today we're going to delve into the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, that is, the book of Galatians. All right, well, as we prepare for chapter four and we continue looking at Paul explaining this difference between living in the grace of Christ or trying to live in obedience to the law and what each one gets you and and what the differences are, what that means in our lives and our standing with God. Uh, Let's prepare ourselves to look at the scripture. Let's do that by joining together as we turn to the Lord in prayer. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us. We thank you for saving us by your grace, not by our efforts. It is your love and grace for us, your mercy lavished upon us. And Father, we thank you for that gift, that gift of life, that gift of relationship with you, that promise of eternity and the presence of your spirit in our lives. Lord, in the midst of all that is happening in our world, we turn to you. We know that you are in charge, that you are faithful, and we can place our trust firmly in you, even when we don't understand and and can't conceive of all the things that are happening, or when we realize that we don't have control over what's going on in our lives and in our world. We know that you do. So Lord, help us to keep our faith firmly rooted in you and live out that faith by trusting in your faithfulness. Lord, as we turn our hearts to your word, help us to understand what we read. Give us ears to hear and a heart that is soft to your spirit. Speak to us by your word, calling us to greater obedience in you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, without doing too much rehashing, let me just say that as we begin in chapter 4, this is a continuation of, of what has been Paul's basic discussion throughout the previous three chapters, and that is that the Galatian church had fallen under the influence of the Judaizers, those that wanted to see them become good observant Jews before they could be considered good Christians, uh, telling them they can't really follow Christ unless they follow the laws and regulations of Judaism. And Paul is challenging that, going, no, you're saved by grace through Christ. It's his work. It is not obedience to the law. The law, in fact, condemns you. It is grace through Christ that saves you. And if you're looking to the law to save you, you're going to get what the law brings, which is condemnation. But right standing with God is found in Christ. And he goes on to present what is a pretty radical idea, especially in his context, his time, viewing his background. And that is to truly be a child of Abraham or a child of the promise that was given to Abraham, you had to have faith in Christ. You had to know Christ as your Savior and Lord. That basically what Paul was saying was that all the Jews out there that were claiming that they were the descendants of Abraham because of bloodline and and national lineage, 
He was saying that doesn't matter. That's not what makes it. That it is a spiritual bloodline and it is open to Jew and Gentile alike. And it is about Christ. Let's suffice it to say that idea would not have set well with these Judaizers or with Jews in general um, during that time period in the world. But nonetheless, it's true. Well, let's pick up that idea as we move into chapter 4. Now, in chapter 4, Paul has left behind using Scripture as a basis for his argument about the law and God's grace through Christ. Um, He's using some practical scenarios from life to help teach the Galatians these points. Now, before we finish chapter 4, he goes back to using scriptures, so don't think Paul's just kind of going off on his own here, but he's trying to grasp different examples of things in life and, and, and in God's Word that he can bring together to help the Galatians understand the reality of their situation. So, let's go ahead and dig in with the passages of Scripture. Let's look at chapter 4. As Paul begins in verse 1, he says this, Think of it this way. If a father dies, and we talked about a will in the last chapter, but here, if a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. Now, they would have understood that reality because a child didn't have property rights. He had ownership because he inherited it. And the the law of the first century Roman world would accommodate for that. But a, an advisor, a guardian, a, a yeah, well, a guardian would be placed in charge of the estate or the property or the resources until that child was of age. And until that point, the person with legal authority was not the, in fact, owner, the child, but was in fact the guardian. So as he says, not much better off than a slave. Yeah, you own it all, but you might as well not own it all because you can't act like you own it all. So functionally, you're a slave. Verse 2, they have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it is with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. So we're saying we had this promise in Christ, but until Christ came, we were under the guardianship of the law not under the promise of Christ. And so there's a distinction there. The law served its purpose in its time. But once Christ hit the scene, that was like hitting that age set by your father of when you can inherit. Everything changes. You're no longer a slave, but you are a freedman or a free man with rights, with ownership, with property, with... Well, going on in verse 4. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law. 
so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now, you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Now, verses 4 through 7 of Galatians chapter 4 are worth memorizing. If you're looking for passages of scripture to just sink your teeth into and say, I want to have some scripture memorized, Okay, it's all good, all right? But this is an outstanding passage, and I want to unpack that passage as as we've just read it. But when the right time came, God had a plan. He knew when it would be the right time. God the Father had set when that inheritance would come. He knew it would be the right time. It says, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. Yeah, Christ was born. He was human, born of a woman, flesh and blood. Was he fully divine as well? Yes, fully human, fully divine. But in his full humanity, he was under the law. But he was the only one to ever live in full obedience to the law. He was sinless under the law. Remember, there's only two ways to be made right with God. One is to live perfectly under the law your entire life, having never transgressed any of it in thought, word, or deed. The second way to be right with God is by receiving his grace and forgiveness. Only one person has been able to achieve option one, and it's because he was not just fully man, but fully God, Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ. So, born of a woman under the law, God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us, he being the father, could adopt us as his very own children. So what happened there? Well, Christ, sinless under the law, lived under the law, died taking the penalty for violating the law when he didn't violate the law. As a result, he was able to apply his payment on our behalf so that all of us who were guilty under the law, who earned death and hell, it's paid for on our behalf through Christ because he paid the price having not owed the price. And in so doing, it says God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law. Why? So that he, God, could adopt us as his very own children. Something important to understand about adoption under Roman law, you could have a child by natural birth that was your heir, and you could get mad at that child or decide they're unfit or whatever, and you could renounce them. And they would no longer be your child legally from what I understand. But a quirk of Roman law is they took adoption very seriously. And if you went through the effort of choosing someone to adopt and bring into your family as your heir, 
You could do that under Roman law. But unlike a natural-born child, an adopted child, you were legally bound to. You could not sever that relationship. So you may have had a natural-born son that you could disown. But once you adopt a son, you can never disown that son. You're bound by that adoption contract. That's the if you will, the the legal framework in which Paul presents this idea that we've been bought, our freedom has been bought, and not only that, but God the Father has adopted us into the family. And that's an adoption that cannot be broken. He adopted us as his very own children. And because we are his children... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. That's an Aramaic term, that Abba. And what does it mean? It means a Swedish disco band from the 80s. No, it doesn't. There was a group named that, but that's not the point. It means, it's a term meaning father, but it means it in a very personal and connected way. Uh, If we had to use a modern English equivalent for it, it would really mean something more like crying out, Daddy. Which for us may be a weird concept. To refer to God with such familiarity? And that's just Paul's point. God is not a series of regulations and laws. He is our Heavenly Father that has adopted us, that calls us His own children. He loves us. And because He has put His Spirit of His Son in our hearts, it prompts us to call out, basically, Daddy. He says, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own children. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. What a profound change to our reality and situation. One that I think we all too often overlook when we reduce our relationship to God as a series of rules, regulations, traditions, or religious activities. It is so much more than any of that could be. It truly is a relationship with the creator of the universe that has decided to take us as his children and his heirs and give us the gift of the spirit of his son in our lives that makes us able to cry out to him as his children dearly loved. It's just three verses, but wow, how profound. Now picking up in verse eight, Paul says, before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods, that's with a little g, that do not even exist. So he's shifted gears went from talking about adoption and and slavery and inheritance. Now he's talking about their pagan background because the Galatian Gentiles were pagan before they came to Christ. 
and they worshiped the, either the Roman or Greek pantheon of gods, or they had some local deities that they might have worshiped. They worshiped seasons and things of that nature. It says, before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that don't even exist. So, now that you know God, or I should say, now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? The weak and useless spiritual principles of this world. You are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. So there, just very quickly, he lays out an appeal to the Galatians going, look, you were set free from that, that superstitious drive that said you had to appease the gods so that the weather would be good or that the harvest would be good. And those weren't even real, but you lived in slavery to that idea that you had to achieve these goals or appease these gods that would never really be appeased. I just look at Greco-Roman mythology. There's there's such capriciousness among the gods. They're, if you will, a bit too human. So he's pointing out the futility of that, which they left behind, and now saying, look, by trying to adhere to the Jewish law, you're doing the same thing over again. You're falling back into this pattern of, I have to appease God. I have to do the right things at the right time to make him happy. And if I don't make him happy, he's going to be mad and things are going to go poorly. I won't be right with him. And although there's something about us as humans that that may click with, that may, may resonate with us, it's a lie. It's not the truth. The truth is we will never do enough to be right with God. All we have is his grace. And he will give it to us abundantly. I refer you back to the section we just covered. Well, let's continue on. Verse 12, Paul's shifting gears again. Now he's making a personal appeal on the basis of his background with Galatians. So see how Paul is approaching this from several different angles, whether that be from a desire to, to connect with different parts of the Galatian church. I mean, we all know now in our modern context, we look at things and we try to do things in different ways to a large group of people because we know there's different, if you will, learning styles or listening styles in the room. So we approach it differently. Well, Paul's kind of doing that in his letter, whether that's to catch everybody or whether he, you know, by letter feels this inability to, if you will, read the room and see how people are responding. So he's just going to cover the bases. I don't know, but here's what he's doing. And now he's gotten to a personal appeal in verse 12. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. For I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. Now, as Gentiles, they were free from the Jewish law before because they weren't Jewish. But he's saying, look, I want you to live like, be like me in that I am free from the law. I became like you Gentiles 
not bound by the law. He goes on, you did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. Now, we don't, here again, Bible tells us everything we need to know, not everything we want to know. We don't know what was wrong with Paul when he showed up to preach to the Galatians. But he says right here, he was sick when he first came and they didn't mistreat him. Verse 14, but even though my my condition, sorry, tempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn away. No, you took me in and cared for me as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself. To give you an idea of how strange that is, we may think, well, that's just people being nice. In the first century world, there were prevailing thoughts, both in the Gentile world and the Jewish world, that were real simple. If you were sick or suffering in this life, it was because God was unhappy with you. Now, whether that's the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, found in the Old Testament, the Jewish God, or whether it was one of the multitude of Greco-Roman gods. The concept was the same. If you were doing well in this life, if you were healthy, if you had resources, then God was pleased with you. So you were doing things that pleased God. If you were suffering, if you were sick, you had chronic ailments, fill in the blank, then obviously you had, well, today we might say, well, you have unconfessed sin in your life, obviously. No, that's not what it means, but that's how they saw the world. It was very simplistic, and it was simply wrong. But for the Galatian church to accept Paul when he was not well and listen to his message about God, to accept him as a messenger from God, literally an angel, an angelos from God, or even to treat him like he was Christ Jesus himself there in their presence. Um, That was tremendous. That speaks to them turning from their pagan background and accepting Christ wholeheartedly to the point that it foundationally changed the way they saw the world and the way they treated others. It was a wonderful commendation to the Galatian church from Paul here. But he goes on in verse 15. Where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I am sure you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if I if it had been possible. Now, was there something wrong with his eyes? We don't know. He may have just been going for something that was obviously vital to everybody at that time and saying, hey, you, you know, we would say, you give me the shirt off your back. Well, he's saying, you give me the eyes out of your head if possible. Um It's a pretty profound commitment and care for him. And then in verse 16, Have I now become your enemy because I am telling you the truth? So he's posing him with a challenge, drawing on their past relationship, but saying, okay, now these things have changed. Why? Have I become your enemy? We're going to dig into that a little more. In 17, he begins to address 
the issue of the false teachers, these Judaizers that have come on the scene. He says, those false teachers are so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They are trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention only to them. If someone is eager to do good things for you, that's all right. But let them do it all the time, not just when I am with you. Now, there are several nuances to the way that passage reads and can be translated. I kind of like the way they render it here. It's pretty straightforward. He's saying, look, this, this eagerness should be a desire for good things for you. And we see Paul's heart expressed that way back in the beginning of Galatians. We saw it back in our study of Corinthians. Um, over and over again, as Paul is talking to the churches that he helped plant, those that he sees as his spiritual children, essentially, that um, his desire is he's willing to sacrifice whatever, whenever, for their benefit. And here he's, he's basically pointing out that these false teachers are so eager to win the favor, the approval, the, the, you know, get enough likes, if you will, from the Galatian church. And that it seems to be real limited to when it's Paul or them, then they're going to step up their game. But when Paul's not in the picture, what they do doesn't seem to be all that favorable for the Galatians. And of course, Paul's overall emphasis is none of it's favorable for the Galatians because it's all false. They're false teachers. In verse 19, oh, my dear children, there it is. He sees them as his spiritual children. Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again. And they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone. But at this distance, I don't know how else to help you. So he's, he's grieving over them. He equates leading them to faith and his experiences in establishing the Galatian church to giving childbirth, you know, and it, it's horrible and it's painful and it's arduous and then it's over and there's joy. But now he's looking at it going, yeah, but it's not over. I still feel like I'm going through labor pains for you. And that those are going to continue until I see Christ fully developed in your lives. And, and there's some aspects to the way that's worded that basically is implying to the Galatian church. Until I see either that you are born and healthy and moving forward or that you're a stillbirth. That those are the options. And to adhere to the law is going to be one and to cling to the grace of Christ is the other. And so all of that's at work in the background here as Paul lays out this personal appeal from his relationship with the church. Now he's going to shift gears. And in verse 21 through, well, 21 through basically the end of the chapter, Paul is going to draw from the Old Testament, from Scripture, and the story of Isaac and his wife, Sarah, and the woman who became his, if you will, slave wife, um, his wife's handmaid, Hagar. And we'll unpack that story as we look in to verse 21 and the verses that follow. Now, here we go with verse 21. 
Paul says to the Galatians, tell me, you who want to live under the law, because apparently they, they pretty much by deed and word been expressing, you know, we're going to adhere to the Jewish traditions, the Jewish festivals and religious holidays and calendar, and we're going to observe these rituals and, and so on and so forth. He says, tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? Now, is he speaking to the Galatians here or is he speaking to the Judaizers, these false teachers? I would say probably both. He's challenging these false teachers that they don't understand the law. And I think he's pretty sure that these Gentile background Galatians don't fully understand the law either. He goes on to say, The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born of God's own fulfillment of his promise. Now, if you remember the story, uh, it's back, I believe, Genesis 21 or thereabouts. Uh, might even be back in Genesis 16, actually. Um, go back and read really pick up in 15 of Genesis and keep reading and, and you'll cover it and get the whole idea of the promises made to Abraham and all that's involved there. But here you have this promise has been given to Abraham. He's going to be the father of a nation. The world will be blessed through his offspring. That's the child of the promise. We covered that back in last chapter. The issue with Hagar and Sarah was this. Abraham and Sarah were old past childbearing years, well past childbearing years. And they waited. They had this promise from God and they were waiting and waiting and waiting. And they got tired of waiting and decided, you know, God said he was going to do this. I'm going to help him out. Now, that's not exactly what they said, but functionally, that's what went down. They decided they were going to help God accomplish God's promises. Let me just say as a, as a narrative note here, that's always a bad idea. Trust in him. Don't trust in God and try to do it for him. Trust him. Obey him. Follow him. But don't try to do it for him. Trust him. Well, the solution they came up with, since Sarah didn't seem to be able to have a baby, was Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, was younger in childbearing years. So she would have Hagar sleep with her husband, becoming a slave wife, and would bear a child that would then be considered the heir. Well, there was a child born, Ishmael. And... Then later, the actual promise of God was fulfilled by God, not by men trying to do God's work for him. And that second child, Isaac, became the child of the promise. God's promises were going to be fulfilled through that lineage. And we have a whole... Oh, we have a whole wealth of human history that bears out the scars of that decision 
back in Genesis. But that's the reality. We try to do it. Doesn't turn out well. Trust in God and let him take care of it. And he does. Again, tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai. Now, it's important here. Paul is using this story allegorically, not in a sense where he's saying the original historical aspects of the story aren't true, but he's saying, look, this historical story can be used as an illustration of what's spiritually going on right now. Uh, It was normal in Jewish rabbinic life to use allegory. The problem is allegory can be untethered from the facts of history and can mean all sorts of stuff. There's an allegorical teaching about the book of Jonah, that the book of Jonah never happened, that, you know, there was no fish, there was no, that Jonah represents Israel and Israel's call from God to go out and proclaim the message of the one true God to be essentially missionaries of monotheism, of the one true God. And that their failure to do that led to the Babylonian captivity. Well, that was Jonah going into the belly of the whale for three days, or the fish, large fish, whatever, for three days, and then being spit back up on the shore. And that was them coming out of exile. And, and well, and you can go, okay, I could see some parallels there. I could see how you could kind of use that to tell the story. But there's a big difference between saying, okay, there's some parallels there that we can draw on to to illustrate the story or to flesh it out or to understand this. But to say Jonah was never a prophet of God, he was never swallowed by a fish, he never went to Nineveh and proclaimed the truth of God, is to deny the historical reality of Scripture. So allegory can be a bad thing. But here Paul uses it in a illustrative method. So let's go back and look at 24 again. So 24 says, these two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represented Mount Sinai where people receive the law that enslave them. Previously, he's referred to this as the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, the law. Okay. Hagar equals Mount Sinai, which equals the law, slavery. And now, verse 25, and now Jerusalem is like Mount Sinai in Arabia, because she and her children live in slavery to the law. So now we have Hagar equals Mount Sinai equals Mosaic Law enslavement, which is now represented not by Mount Sinai, but by Jerusalem, by Judaism. 
it is slavery to the law. Verse 26, but the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman, and she is our mother. As Isaiah said, and here, quoting from Isaiah to back this up, Rejoice, O childless woman, you who have never given birth. Break into a joyful shout, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. And we go, well, that's not what that passage is about. When a divinely inspired author of scripture, this case Paul, quotes an Old Testament passage and says, hey, here's what this is talking about. That is God saying, hey, here's what this passage is talking about. So, yeah, it does mean that because Scripture just said that's what it means. The New Testament can interpret and explain the Old Testament. And there he does it. And Paul is using that to illustrate to the Galatians and to these false teachers how off-base their whole idea is between the law and grace, that they were relying on the law, that that even what at that day and time was modern Jerusalem with its, its Judaic traditions and, and calendars and rituals and the, the law was all about slavery, not freedom. Freedom is found in Christ. And you cannot be an heir of God as a slave. Your freedom has been purchased through Christ. Place your faith in Him. Receive your freedom. Be made a child of God who also makes you an heir and gives you the Spirit of His Son. 1 verse 28. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. But you are now being persecuted by those who want to keep the law, just like Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. There came a point where Ishmael and his mother Hagar were thrown out because Ishmael was harassing Isaac, was taunting him, and his mother as well was was just... Well, go back and read it. But it was not a good situation. It was a situation that, quite frankly, was never supposed to be. Had they trusted in God and not tried to do the work of God by human effort then that situation never would have come about. Just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, Paul is saying, look, we're being persecuted because we're children of the promise. And the children of the law, they don't like that. Verse 30. But what do the scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. That's what it says in Scripture. Okay, that's Genesis 21, I believe. Um, 
back Genesis 21, 9 and 10, cover those. So what do the scriptures say? Get rid of the slave and her son. For the son of the slave woman will not share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. What does that mean? He's saying we are the children of the inheritance. The children of the law, the children of Hagar, the children of Jerusalem are not children of the inheritance. But we, the children of Sarah, the children of the new Jerusalem, we have the inheritance. The contrast could not be more stark. And Paul, again, is laying out this argument to draw them back to living in their freedom, which Christ purchased, so that they would not fall into living under slavery to the law which is ultimately slavery to our sin. Because our sin is condemned under the law without redemption as an option. Let's turn to God again as we close out our study of this chapter. Heavenly Father, Abba Father, We don't begin to understand just what it means to be adopted by you, to be made heirs of yours. That that puts us on par with Christ in relationship with you. And and God, we, we don't get it. We don't understand. We can't wrap our minds around that. But we know you have said it in your word and we know it's true. You have redeemed us when we were powerless. Worse than that, you redeemed us when we didn't care, when we were your enemies. You did this. We thank you, God. We thank you for setting us free, for calling us yours, for making us your children, and your heirs, and that it's not dependent on us following law. But we have received your grace, and now we seek to live in your grace. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.